All right, we are in 1 Peter chapter 2, if you'll turn there with me in your Bibles. And as I stated at the beginning of our series through 1 Peter, that the guarantee that I make you is this, that at one time or another in your Christian faith, you are going to find yourself standing in a storm of life. That storm is defined by trials, troubles, tribulation, and whatever form they take. And we need to be prepared for those events at one time or another experience. Peter wrote to a group of Christians that were either just beginning or about to begin to be persecuted simply for their Christian faith. And he wrote to a group of Christians that were in a specifically vulnerable position. They were Jewish Christians who had left Israel and were dispersed amongst Asia Minor in Gentile regions alone. Many of them were exiled from their homeland due to the fact of their faith in Jesus Christ. When the early church began and the Jews turned to Christ, many of them were disowned by their Jewish families. They were exiled. They were asked to leave. They no longer carried an inheritance from their family. They no longer carried a name that had family identity. And they were exiled and they were scattered throughout the Roman Empire in Gentile regions. And as Christians, they held to an understanding of God that was diametrically opposed to everyone around them. For everyone around them held the idea of a polytheistic understanding of God, that there were many different gods. But as a Christian and a Jew, they held to a monotheistic, that there is only one true God. And this prohibited them from worshiping any other god And when the emperor of Rome claimed to be a deity, even calling himself the son of God, people at certain times of the day were required to go to a temple that was there in these different areas, these different cities, that was solely dedicated to the worship of the emperor of Rome. And they would have to bow and show contrition before the deity of the emperor. And this is something a Christian just could not do. And they were greatly persecuted for it. On top of that, as Nero, the emperor at that time, blamed the Christians for a large fire that he himself is now known to have started that destroyed a large part of the city of Rome. And wanting to avoid accusation, he blamed everything on the Christian people and stated that this was the beginning of an uprising against Rome on a Christian's behalf. So Peter writes to these people who are scattered abroad, who find themselves now facing a tsunami of persecution. Today, these storms of life that we face, like they then, can be weathered as we learn who Christ is, 
who we are in Christ and understand the unity of the church. These are the points that Peter will draw out for us this morning to help us stand on the rock, to allow us in our most vulnerable time to stand in a position of confidence in Christ, allowing us then to weather the storm in which we are facing, allowing us to stand without crumbling and falling due to the weight of the pressure that that storm may place upon us whatever that storm may be. And as we've been moving through this letter, as, as Peter sums up for us in Peter 5, 1 Peter 5.12, that he asks them to stand firm in the grace of God. And we are asking you to stand in the storm and specifically in the confidence of standing on the rock. Now, all of this imagery is drawn from the conclusion of the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says that he who hears these words and applies them and does them is like a wise man who builds his house upon the rock, and when the storm comes, the house will stand. However, though, if one chooses not to hear his words and not to do them, he likens that person to an individual building his house upon the sand. And when the storms come, the house will fall and great will be its fall. The issue is the foundation in which the house, our lives, is built upon. And this morning we're going to discover that that foundation is none other than Christ himself. As Peter calls him the chief cornerstone, a term that Jesus used of himself in the Gospels. He's then going to explain who we are in Christ, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And then he's going to describe for us that we are not alone in this endeavor. Part of the insecurity that we may carry during that time that we face one of the storms of life, is mistaking to think that as a believer in Jesus Christ, we are going through it alone. Even if I don't have anyone physically around me, encouraging me and supporting me during that storm of life, I know that my Lord and Savior will never leave me nor forsake me. He is always with me. And in the language that Peter uses, he wants to demonstrate and to show to us that we are not alone as we weather the storms of life. And in that uh, security and in that confidence, we can find security in an insecure world. That God is with us and the body of Christ is around us to help us in that time. One of the greatest mistakes that we can make as an individual going through one of these storms of life is to neglect the fellowship of the body of Christ. Yeah, the storm may beat against you, pound you down, and it may just be easier on Sunday mornings or on Wednesday evenings to stay in bed or just to curl up on the couch, turn on the TV and let the TV wash over you. 
And you think that, that for that moment that you're escaping, but the pressures of the storm remains. You can't escape it. And often people choose at that time, you know, I'm just, I want to be by myself. I want to be alone. That's exactly what the enemy would have for you at that moment. It's at those times that we should run to the body of Christ. And not run to it to expect them to fix all of our problems. Believe it or not, run to it that we may be encouraged by them as we get our eyes off of ourselves and look to encourage another one who is near us or sitting close to us. I've seen it in this church. I've seen people go through very difficult experiences. And knowing that they are going through such difficult experiences, I am amazed to see that when they come to the fellowship, they are more concerned about interacting with others and making sure that others are okay. And in the process, the Lord ministers to them, giving them the encouragement, the grace, and the perseverance to go on just a little longer. So knowing who Christ is, knowing who we are in Christ, and the unity in which we have in the body of Christ allows us to stand on the rock, to be secure at a very insecure time. So we begin in verse 1 of chapter 2, and of course this is a letter that Peter is writing And do we all know that chapters and verses are not inspired by God? That God did not move the writers of these letters to say, okay, Peter, here's chapter 2, verse 1. So often when we come to different portions of Scripture, we have a tendency to cut them or to divide them whenever we see the chapters divide or a verse divide or one of those little things in our Bibles that has a very strange name but helps us find the place that we're looking for. They're called perecopes, big word. These little titles of the section in which we are about to read. But if I may encourage you, try to look over these things. Try to read the letter in its entirety as if it was a letter written to you or an email sent to you to allow you to see the flow of the letter and the flow of thought from the author of the letter. And so we pick it up with these words in verse 1. So put away all malice. Some of your translations may read, therefore, put away all malice. It is a conclusion statement that he is making from his previous point. And that point last week that we looked at was the fact that Peter was writing concerning the necessity of holiness in the believer's life. Simply based upon, even though we gave you five distinct purposes or motives to be holy, Peter sums it up this way, be holy for God is holy. There's our ultimate motivation. We should reflect the holiness of God in our life. Not that we'll ever obtain perfection here in this world, but that's what we should be striving for. That we may honor and glorify our Savior and our Heavenly Father. And as a result of this holiness, he desired that holiness then to allow us to love each other last week as Christ loved the church. 
Peter knew that these individuals going through trying times were going to have to depend upon one another. And there's nothing that is more encouraging than to be surrounded by people who you know love you unconditionally. But what will hinder that love? What will disrupt that unity amongst a group of people is sin. And so therefore he moves into chapter 2 and says, Therefore, or so, put away, take off, remove... And he lists five sins for us. The term put off or put away is a term that was used in that culture that represented an individual removing a filthy garment from their body and not to pick it up again. As you know, the Jewish people going through life at different circumstances or at different points of life, they could become defiled by something around them. For example, if they touched a dead body. They could be defiled. Their clothes could be defiled and needed to be removed and never to taken again. He's saying remove these, this dirty, defiled clothes, these attitudes, these sins. And he goes on to list five. Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. These lists were common in the Jewish culture to allow people to have something in which to compare themselves to. You know, today our society thrives on information that's given to us in bullet points. In fact, I think we consume too much uh, information simply on the base of bullet-pointed items. Part of the process of true learning is the work or the journey that is done to arrive at the conclusions that are necessary to arrive at. It's not enough to simply go through your life and rely on cliff notes or bullet-pointed summaries of specific topics. Working through the topic will allow you to have a broader understanding of it. But for the sake of time, the writers of the New Testament often offered these lists of different items that must be considered. When it comes to the issue of malice, he is saying... Anyone who is harboring any evil thoughts against another person, these thoughts must be dealt with. If you have some kind of bitterness or resentment or some kind of animosity towards another person, this malice must be put away. It must be removed, never to be picked up again. He talks about deceit, which is any form of dishonesty and trickery. Lying is deceitful. As he moves on to hypocrisy, insincerity, or being a sham, an actor playing a role, trying to be someone that you're not, is deceitful. The issue of deceit is trying to justify working someone else out of their true or right position. Hypocrisy is displaying yourself to those around you in a certain manner when in actuality that is insincere. Let's deal with an issue right now today. We're family, right? Family meeting. Pastor Joe and I have been doing this a very long time. 
as your pastors, we feel that we know you fairly well. And when we see you come in, if we see on your face that there is something wrong, and you're kind of drooping, and your body language is screaming, please ask me what is wrong. When Pastor Joe and I ask you, is everything okay? If you tell us fine, we're going to excommunicate you from the church. Okay? Now, I'm not being sincere. But give Joe and I a little bit more credit than that. We can see it. And God surely can. That's what we're here for. To help you. You don't need to come in when everything is going awry in life and tell us you're fine to help Joe and I think that you're more spiritual than you actually are. But that would be a slight form of hypocrisy, wouldn't it? That you have a faith stating that everything is wrong when then you say everything is fine. But then there's envy that must be dealt with. He says, this is the fourth one. A barefaced jealousy over the prosperity of another. An envious heart would be you being uh, jealous of one who is near you, who's being blessed at any given time, and you're not. And lastly, even evil speaking in the form of backbiting and malicious gossip and recrimination, which is vilifying someone behind their back to others unnecessarily. Peter brings these five specific sins to our attention because they will hinder three things. Number one, they will certainly hinder your love for one another, right? Let's just be honest. They will hinder your love for one another. Number two, we will discover in just a moment that these five sins will hinder your maturing in Christ. And therefore, number three, they'll hinder the unity of the body of Christ. There is no place for malice, deceit, hypocrisy, and envy, and evil speaking amongst God's people. There's no place for it. And they must be laid aside. And all of these things will contribute to the disunity of the body of Christ in its ultimate form. Verse 2, notice that he then moves. He says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, the concern for Christian maturity. See yourself that when you first came to Christ and you first got saved as an infant in Christ. You were just learning how to talk and walk and everything that goes along with that stage of life. Even the necessity of having someone else feed you for that particular stage of your Christian life. But then you grow as a Christian, just like a a human grows. 
And then you go through the different stages and you, then you hit the, the, adoles- the adolescence and you, you kind of rebel against things of God for a little while and you kind of, you know, do exactly what a teenager does, mouth off to God, so on and so forth. And then you start to mature as an adult and you start to see how foolish you were during the adolescent stage that you really didn't know anything at that time, even though you felt you knew everything. And then you grow, becoming mature and wise in your Christian life. It all starts at that new birth. And it's a natural progression that all Christians go through. And that's why we consider each and every one of you a work in progress. I cannot look at you today and sum up your total value before the Lord because you're a work in progress. What you look like today should not be the way you look five years from now. I look back at my Christian life over the last 30 years and I can't believe the work that God has done and yet now I fully am aware that He has still yet a lot of work left to go. But He brings this up because maturity is an issue that will allow them to weather the storms of life and to stand on the rock in confidence. An immature person, as you know, is very unstable, aren't they? Often they are persuaded very easily by their feelings and emotions. They have a tendency to look at the moment and come to some conclusion and run with it, but they don't realize they're they're looking at the circumstances through the lens of a microcosm of the moment. It's later in life that as you begin to mature that you start seeing things in a different light altogether. You start seeing the bigger picture more robustly. Peter knew that in their state of vulnerability, as they were going through the persecutions alone, separated and isolated in these Gentile regions, that it would be necessary for them to rely on one another to weather the storm. And what was going to be required was their maturity. He saw maturity being the bond of unity. And if I may, can I direct your attention to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning? If you'll turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 4. This is a very important subject for us to discuss this morning. In Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11, Paul deals with the issue of maturity and unity, saying that one will lead to the other. And if we will, let's start in verse 11. And he gave, that is, Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up or the edification of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children, notice what these children are experiencing, tossed to and fro by every wave and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Let me stop there for a moment. It was Paul's intention, and he saw rightly, of course, that 
Apostles and prophets and shepherds, pastors and teachers were given to the body of Christ to equip the body of Christ to fulfill the work of the ministry. That's a primary objective here at Calvary Chapel. We want to equip you to fulfill the work of the ministry. And he saw that a a full understanding, a deep knowledge of God would lead to that maturity. Now, we know that knowledge in and of itself does not mature a person. It is knowledge combined with experience that matures a person. And that's what he had in mind here, undoubtedly. Because he says it elsewhere. We know that knowledge in and of itself can be very dangerous, can't it? It can puff someone up, cause pride within them when it isn't exercised properly. But notice what he's saying that specifically when it comes to the doctrines of Jesus Christ. This will lead to maturity in in the individual and also to the unity of the body of Christ, which we'll see further in just a moment, and the love for one another. Maturity is what will bring about unity. Today we are trying to unify the body of Christ on the basis of compromise where we are compromising on the essential doctrines of Christianity simply to obtain unity amongst the broad spectrum of those who call themselves Christians. But yet there are those Christians that certainly hold to the understandings of not only God but of this world that are directly opposed to that of Scripture. And when individuals stay in an immature state before God, that arrested state of growth, they are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Let me give you an example. There is a church in our area that is having great difficulties due to a doctrinal issue that is dividing the church. Are you ready for this? The doctrinal issue is that They believe, some in the church, they believe that the earth is flat. I am not kidding. Now, I think we've seen pictures from space. I think the uh, the word tells us that it's a sphere that hangs. And yet, the church is dividing over this issue. Folks, this is why we teach you the word of God. (laughs) You don't get it caught up in these kind of foolish discussions. This is silliness. To think the word of God can be used to justify racism, as we've talked about earlier, is, is simply, uh, it's simply irresponsible in any, every shape or the form of the word. But maturity equaling unity. Let us look here in verse 15 as we conclude this writing of Paul in Ephesians. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, that is, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with, its, uh, with which it is equipped. Excuse me. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Maturity is key. The problem that we're facing today is the definition of what a mature Christian is. A mature Christian is an individual who has a right understanding of God through his word and 
acts and lives and conducts his life accordingly in the love of Christ. And someone is continuing to grow always in this process of their Christian faith until they go home to be with the Lord. Then it ends. Maturity isn't just head knowledge. It's, it's the knowledge combined with the wisdom of experience. It's the individual who sees things as God sees them with a biblical worldview. It's an individual who understands that the greatest uh, commands of the God are to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The greatest of them all. And so I bring you back now to 1 Peter. And as he states that you may, verse 2, like newborn infants, long for that pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Encouraging, exhorting those Christians to grow in their faith in Jesus Christ maturing to allow for the unity that is necessary to, with, to withstand the storm in which they are about to experience. Verse 4. And as you come to Him, it's not only at the moment that you first get saved, but as you come to Him, who is a living stone rejected by man, but in the sight of God chosen and precious as you come to him not only at that moment that you got saved but day by day in your christian life in your times of prayer in your times of personal devotion when you're simply reading the word of god and allowing the holy spirit to meet you there and to teach you and to show you christ in the scriptures As you come to him, the one who is the living stone, he is not dead. He is not removed from your life. He is not still in the tomb. He is arose on the third day who was rejected by man as we are being rejected by the world, as they were being rejected by the world. And yet in God's eyes, he was incredibly valuable and precious. He was perfect. And he goes on in verse 5, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they are destined to do. 
Peter is using language from the Old Testament that described the temple. The temple in the Jewish culture, and again, we believe that Peter is writing to Jews who had just become Christians. This is one of the first letters written of the New Testament around 65 AD. And they have all this Jewish heritage behind them. And now all of those things have been satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ. And this took some getting used to. They were dispersed amongst Asia Minor, these Gentile regions, and far, far, far away from the temple. The temple was still struck, uh, uh, a structure at this time in Jerusalem. 70 AD, it will be destroyed. But, but Peter's saying, listen, you who are far off are now the temple of the living God. Each one of you has God dwelling in him, in her, in the form of the Holy Spirit. And as Christ was once rejected, so are you being rejected. But these who are rejecting him are the ones who were disobedient to the word of God. They chose not to believe in who he was. And therefore, his person became a stumbling block to them. Today, we see it even more than ever how much of a stumbling block Christ has become. When it comes to the academic community, we see that Christ is a stumbling block because the Bible gives us a worldview that is absolutely uh, diametrically opposed to the worldview of the secular list. We see that Christ has become a stumbling block Politically, because he asks to be the Lord and Savior of the individual in the kingdom of God. God has become a stumbling block because they chose not to believe him and they rejected him. And now society as a whole continues to trip over him and to stumble over him. Just as the society did back then. He's a rock of offense He's very offensive to many different people. But yet for you and I, he is the chief cornerstone and we are the living stones being built up in him. The new temple during this period, the church age in which God is using us on his behalf to go into a fallen world. There are two words used here. For, for Christ, it is a specific word that is used as a stone that was perfectly hewn to be and to operate as it is, therefore becoming a cornerstone, meaning that the entire building is dependent upon this one stone and it is perfectly carved and shaped in a way that when it arrives to the site in which the structure will be built, it does not need to be modified by the craftsman in any way, shape, or form. It is perfect and all of the structure will be based upon it. But then there are living stones, as he calls us, a different word in the Greek. And these were stones that were sent from the quarry to the master stoneman on the job site. And if they needed to be chipped away a little bit to fit perfectly, so be it. What a perfect illustration for us. 
Christ, the perfect one, is the foundation for this structure. And we, the stones that are building it, each and every one of us, this place that God dwells, the individual's heart, if need be, the master stoneman Christ himself chips away at us so that we all fit together perfectly and allow two things to occur. Number one, we become a holy priesthood. The priesthood was known in the Old Testament for two reasons. Number one, to represent God to the people. And number two, to represent the people to God. We now hold that responsibility as a holy priesthood. You and I are that point of contact. It's no longer the Levitical priests there in the temple that people came to to interact with God. Each and every time someone meets you who are a Christian, it is a place of contact for them to meet God. Because God is working through you to minister to them and you can pray for them on their behalf to God. But then you and I are also instructed by the word that as we are being built up and as we have become this holy priesthood, we are to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, undoubtedly, Peter is referring to the process in which the Levitical priests brought sacrifices on behalf of the Jewish people at certain times of the year. But the New Testament tells us that we are making sacrifices to God on behalf of people and behalf of Him each and every day. Let me give you five of these sacrifices that we bring to God in and through our lives. Number one, the first sacrifice that we bring before God is that of ourselves. Romans 12.1, that we should become a living sacrifice before the Lord which is only our reasonable required response to all that God has done for us. It is important that you and I know that that is our act of worship before Him, that we become that living sacrifice before the Lord that looks and appears in this manner. Through the statement of Jesus there in the garden, not my will be done, but your will be done. That is the mandate of one who has become a living sacrifice. Number two, Hebrews 13, 15 tells us that we need to bring sacrifices of praise before the Lord. For the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. Hebrews 13, 16 tells us that we should bring the sacrifices of good works, not forgetting the poor and the orphans and the widows, serving others as Christ would. Number four, the sacrifice of our possessions, Hebrews 13, 16. Understanding that all of the material blessings that we are now enjoying have been given to us by God. And we are not the possessors of these things. We are merely stewards of these things before God. And therefore, giving unto God is part of our responsibility as Christians. We don't formally take a financial offering here at Calvary Chapel. We allow you to give as you so are led to give in a box that we have provided there in the back of the church. However, though, let me say this. 
I do believe that it is the Christian's personal responsibility to be responsible for all that God has given them, including their finances. God has asked us to honor Him with every aspect of our life, including, including our material possessions. We need to see ourselves as stewards, and giving unto God financially is part of our act as spiritual worship. And those who choose not to give, I would say that that is an issue between you and God that you must resolve. Because you are saying to God that you are not submitting this aspect of your life to Him. That the other things in life are more important than He is in that regard to your finances. Now you know me well enough. We've never begged for money here. We're not making this appeal because we have financial need. God provides all that we need, but He also asks us all to be generous in our giving. And I believe that God never is outdone when it comes to giving. You can never outbless God. And when you see yourself as a steward of all that you have, uh, then you look at everything that you have differently. So, Eric, are you saying that 10% is what I must give unto the Lord? That's what they did in the Old Testament. But the mandate of the New Testament is this giving from a cheerful heart, glorifying God with every aspect of your life. So, pray as you're about to worship Him in that way of giving. Pray and see what the Lord would have you to give every aspect of our life, sacrifices of our possessions. He who sees his brothers in needs and has the ability to fulfill that need and does not is prohibited by John. It is a detrimental characteristic of the Christian. It is one that hinders rather than furthers the purposes of Jesus Christ. So it's not just our money, it's everything in which we own. And number five, the sacrifice of service. The sacrifice of service. And this is also becoming an issue. Romans 15, 16, the sacrifice of service. We have a consumer mentality in our nation today. We come to different places to consume. We come to get rather than to give. And as long as we carry that mentality with us, we're always going to be in a miserable state before God. Giving to God through our service is very important. Serving one another here at the church. Serving in uh, inconspicuous ways are just as much a blessing to God than in a more prominent way here at the front of the church. Trust me, you might think this is glamorous, but I have a huge responsibility And I have the promise to look forward to that God's going to judge me more harshly. Yay, me. But folks, I've often found that an individual who is struggling struggling in their Christian walk, when they are not serving their body in some way, some form, they're taking in, but they're not putting out, and they're just becoming fat sheep. Let me just say it that way. These are five ways in which we can sacrifice before the Lord in an acceptable way through Jesus Christ as He is building us up. As Paul wrote, he said, Do you not know that you are the temples of God and the Spirit dwells in you? 
And he goes on in verse 9. He says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his that is God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This language comes right out of the book of Exodus. Exodus 19 verses 5 and 6, you see such parallels drawn by Peter here in our text this morning to that of Moses delivering the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt and allowing God to bring them to the promised land in which he had reserved for them. Now, here's the deal. As these Jewish believers were scattered abroad, they had lost their national identity, they lost their home, they lost their possessions, they've lost many different things in the name of Christ. They feel detached, they feel disconnected with everyone. Peter's saying, you are the people of God, even though you are abroad. You yourself are a chosen race before the foundations of the world. God chose you. You're a royal priesthood. He called us a holy priesthood first. Now a royal priesthood was one who came before the people, going out into the world. It was the royal priest who would leave Israel and go into the known world to tell the people about the excellencies of Christ. You are a holy nation, meaning that you are a people separated from this world. You are different and unique uh, compared to it and in contrast to it, and you are totally devoted on to God. You are a people of His possession, He says. You are bought and paid for with the blood of Jesus Christ. You have special purpose as individuals who are part of this chosen royal holy nation. And you are to proclaim the excellencies of God, the good works. People are drawing conclusions about God based upon your life the moment you call yourself a Christian. From that moment, you are on parade. You are in the spotlight. And people are drawing their conclusions about God when they see your life. That's a lot of weight of responsibility, isn't it? But it's a responsibility that God has given each and every one of us as he's called us in his words to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Going out into the world and presenting God to a fallen world. You may say, well, I don't want that responsibility. Well, then God would say, don't be a Christian because that's a responsibility that comes with it. Well, I could never do it perfectly. God's not asking you to do it perfectly. He's saying to do it sincerely and honestly. And you're going to make mistakes. And you're going to uh, present him improperly and be real at those times. Admit those mistakes. Confess those mistakes. And people look at you not as one who is perfect, but one who is real and authentic as you go and proclaim the excellencies of him and all that the Lord has done. 
For you have been called out, he says, from darkness into light. The blinders that Satan had upon your eyes have been removed by God, and now you are able to see all things as they truly are. You were once not a people. You didn't have that identity. You were one just in the sea of people under the sway and the rule of the wicked one. Trying to find your individual identity. Trying to find purpose. Trying to stand out from a crowd of conformity. Trying to be unique in some way compared to someone else. And yet you were still drowning and just completely consumed by the mass of people that are under that position and under that authority. But now God has drawn you out of that. And now you have an identity. You have purpose. You have hope. You have a reason that you didn't have before. Why? Because instead of not experiencing mercy and being under the weight and the wrath of God, now you've obtained mercy. And now God can extend that mercy to us through the work of Jesus Christ. I want to give you five quick things about mercy. Number one, mercy is rooted in the goodness and in the love of God. God desires to be a merciful God. And that's why he sent his only begotten son, paid the price that we could not pay for ourselves. He didn't have to do any of that. He wasn't obligated to do any of that. He chose to do that from the foundations of the world before creation ever began. The mercy that God has for us is so great that it can be compared to nothing. I like one wrote, he said, I can only compare the mercy of God to that of God's love and to that of God's holiness. Of course, love and holiness are also, we are unable to measure that in any way, shape, or form. His mercy is everlasting. It's everlasting mercy that we discover in our relationship to God through Christ. It is faithful to us. God's mercy is faithful. He is not giving us what we deserve. He is giving us what we don't deserve. And number five, it is unfailing. These are five characteristics that I went through the entire Bible and drew out for us concerning His mercy. It's rooted in His goodness and love. It is so great that it is immeasurable. It's everlasting. It is faithful. It is unfailing. And Peter undoubtedly had Hosea 2.23 in mind when he said, and I will sow for her myself in a land and I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, and he shall say, I should say, you are my God. Paul said it this way. He said in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so he concludes this morning in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners or pilgrims and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh means not to do them, to resist them, which wage war against your soul, speaking of the relationship between the spirit and the flesh warring against one another. 
And in verse 12, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. Why I believe that this is Jewish Christians that he is writing to, which include, you know, we are grafted into that vine. So we read this also. So keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It was a reality in the hearts and the minds of all the apostles that Jesus Christ was one day going to return. And what would Jesus find at his return? He said to them in their hearing, will he find faith on this earth at his return? There's a day of accountability. There's a day of reckoning that each and every one of us will have to endure. Some of us at the bema seat of Christ, with Christ as our advocate, but others at that great white throne judgment of Revelation 20 where every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, but at that point it's too late. Decision time is over. It is a reality. And throughout the Bible, we see that at many different times throughout the history of mankind, there were those who think, oh, the world's just getting away with it. There's one day that they'll all be held accountable by God. That day of visitation. I want you to be able to stand in the storms of life knowing first and foremost who Christ is. He is our cornerstone. He is the center of all things. And notice the scripture says we come to him. He is the center. We revolve around him. He handles that place of preeminence in our life. It is not me in the center and he up here. It is him in the center and I am up here. And I draw near to him. James says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. He's asking you to take the first step. He's saying, you take that first step of initiative and come back to me. Number two, Peter told us who we are in Christ. That we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, a chosen race. Now, I must state at this point that there is a doctrinal concern here. Some people believe that by Peter using this language, he is stating that Christians have now seceded the nation of Israel and that Israel has no more to do with any of the plans of God. I reject that thinking. For Paul makes it abundantly clear in Romans 9 that Israel has been temporarily hardened due to their rejection of Jesus Christ. We have been grafted into the vine. And yet one day, Romans 11, they will be grafted back into the vine. And the book of Revelation deals with the judgment of the world epicentered in Israel itself. Ezekiel saying that Israel at one time will be drawn back to their nation. And they were in 1948. Israel still has a purpose and a plan uh, in God's redemptive drama. We have not replaced Israel. We are in the time of the church. God is using us now as he wanted to use them, but he is certainly not done with them. And lastly, Peter has told us that God is with us. That God is with us that he dwells in us. So we are not alone when we go through the storms of life. 
Not only do we have the Lord, but we also have those within the body of Christ to encourage us as we go through the storms of life. By knowing who Christ is, by knowing who we are in Jesus Christ, and by understanding that God is with us along with the body of Christ, we can stand on the rock and weather the storms of life, therefore standing firm in the grace of God during the storms.